Hello. We're looking at the purity of Christ today in our character study of the Lord Jesus Christ here on Search for Truth. This is your Bible teaching program with Brian Johnston. So welcome and thanks for tuning in. It's a very tall order to try to study the purity of Christ in a 10-minute talk. Christ's character is a vast area of study. And the hymn I've chosen, which follows Brian's talk today, it was written by Philip Bliss, and uh, it's called Man of Sorrows. Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, and it later describes us as guilty, vile and helpless we, but spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be, hallelujah, what a saviour. So let's consider the purity of Christ now with Brian. Thanks, John. Yes, Paul begins the 11th chapter of his second Bible letter to Corinth by saying, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Paul here is like the friend of the groom, who watches out for the bride in the period between the engagement and the wedding. The bridegroom's friend's job was to guard her, and it was on the testimony of this friend that the bridegroom chose his bride. He'd carry all the messages exchanged between them. For before marriage, women were to be strictly guarded at home with their parents or friends. Remember also that engagement wasn't taken lightly in Paul's culture. If someone was unfaithful during the engagement period, it was considered adultery, and an engagement could only be broken by divorce. Paul uses that imagery here by implying that any time we give our hearts to something other than God, we're committing spiritual adultery during the period of our engagement. The Corinthians didn't admire Paul's apostolic credentials because they were thinking in a worldly way. They didn't like Paul's apparent weakness and unimpressive appearance. This was an important point because Paul's apparent weakness was shared by Jesus. It wasn't only Paul's apostolic credentials that were under attack, but the very nature of Jesus himself was being attacked. The troublemakers among the Corinthian Christians, those who were stirring up contention against Paul, didn't only attack Paul, they were also attacking the true Jesus by preaching another Jesus. Who was this other Jesus? Because of the way the Corinthian Christians despise Paul's image of weakness and unimpressive appearance, the other Jesus was probably one who knew no weakness, persecution, humiliation, suffering or death. One of the most bizarre books written recently must surely be the Da Vinci Code. Its fabrications have been the subject of lawsuits and scathing historical reviews. As a means of bringing its author fame and money, it was brilliantly conceived. But in terms of scholarship, it left much to be desired. It's been described as a gasp of human scepticism. 
Well, it's to be hoped it's a last gasp. The Bible has been attacked on intellectual and scientific grounds, and we can measure the failure of these means to dent its credibility by the fact that this last gasp effort, the recycled fabrications of the Da Vinci Code, has now been put forward in an attempt to attack the moral purity of the Bible's central character, Jesus Christ. The Bible has confounded its critics, so now the attack is personal against the one the Bible claims to be the Son of God come as man. Those of his contemporaries who were not on the side of truth were not bashful in the slurs they heaped upon the historical Jesus whom they despised and rejected. They twisted his words. They sneered at his parentage as they thought of it. They branded him demon-possessed. They ridiculed him and thought him mad. But apparently, it never entered their minds to attack the purity of his lifestyle. The Bible records faithfully the time he spent in the company of women who were among his followers and the beneficiaries of his ministry. No one, not even one of his fiercest enemies at the time, spoke against his behaviour with women, except that he surprised everyone by talking with women on subjects of significance, something that broke the existing taboos of that culture. When Jesus turned to the crowds and said, Which of you convicts me of sin? There was no one who could rightly condemn him on any matter. Repeatedly at his mock trial, Pilate said, I find no fault with this man. Different Bible writers who lived the closest to Christ testify that he knew no sin. And it was John, the closest of them all, who said there was no sin in him. After three years of really close friendship, John recalls his most striking impression of the life of Christ. Remember, when we get closer to someone we respect, usually we're disappointed to find that they too have serious faults. But the closer John got, the more he could say of Jesus, in him is no darkness at all. This is crucial testimony. This points to what was distinctive about the life and person of Jesus Christ, whom the Bible presents as embodying the quality all Old Testament animal sacrifices shared. They were expressly commanded to be without defect, without blemish. This is why the lies contained within the Da Vinci Code and its predecessors are so damaging, if they are in any way believed by gullible persons. If it were possible for opponents of Christianity or those who unthinkingly do their work for them, if it was possible for them to succeed in pointing to a single moral blemish in the life and person of Jesus Christ, then the whole of Christianity would be in ruins. But that can never be. In all the world's religions, the claims made for the sinless moral purity of Christ find no parallel not by a million miles. From the past to the present day, religious devotees have tolerated chronic moral weaknesses in their so-called gods. These are gods made in the image of fallen men and women, and in what's written of them we find a cesspool of temper, jealousy, lust and shameful acts. It's been said that the Greek gods didn't give up on the Greeks, but the pagan Greeks gave up on their gods. 
Some of their own writers, it seems, lost patience with the depravity of their gods. I distinctly remember hearing at first hand of the shocked reaction of trainee teachers during a demonstration session on comparative religions. They were shocked at the immoral behaviour some religions tolerated in their gods. It was apparent from the strength of their reaction that they judged their alleged behaviour to be unworthy of humans. Yes, voyeurism, incest and rape are among the things you're likely to find if you read the writings of major world religions in which they describe the behaviour and character of their own gods. By contrast, our subject is purity, the purity seen in the life of Jesus Christ. But what do we mean by purity? It's actually quite hard to come up with a definition of purity. We tend to define it as the absence of something, don't we? We might regard someone as pure if they don't do certain things or don't go to certain places or whatever. Purity for us is the absence of impurity. But the difference with Jesus is that purity was a positive thing with him. He was declared to be the Son of God by the Spirit of Holiness. It's as if we can define purity as the presence of something in his case, not merely as the absence of things as in our case. For example, there are those who profess to hate sin, but they don't seem to love righteousness. They're strong in denouncing evil, but not equally strong in applauding what's right. Jesus Christ, by contrast, loved righteousness and he hated iniquity. The purity of Jesus Christ manifested itself in actions and in speech. Negatively, by never doing sin or speaking falsehood, for he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, Peter the Apostle writes. But it is also shown positively since he always did what was pleasing to God and was always speaking the things which pleased God. One of the major, if not the major, descriptions of God in the Old Testament is that he's the holy God. Take Deuteronomy 23.14 which says, For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. Holy means free from defilement of any type, and it's a holiness that expresses itself in moral purity. To say that Christ is absolutely holy is to say that he's absolutely pure. One way of seeing this is in the many terms the Bible uses to describe Christ's purity. In Hebrews 7 and verse 26, Jesus is called a high priest, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And in Hebrews 9 and verse 14, we're told that the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanses our consciences so that we may serve the living God. And more than that, the Bible multiplies expressions and figures in order to fully describe the absolute holiness or moral purity of Christ. There's nothing in nature with which to compare it except light. For, as the Apostle John says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Victor Hugo said, Pythagoras, Epicurus, 
Socrates, Plato, these are the torches of the world. Christ is the light of day. And that brilliant holiness of Jesus was seen in his constant, never-failing victory over temptation. Not merely the negative innocence that results from being shielded from contact with evil, but also the positive holiness that meets evil and overcomes it. Hebrews 4 and verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And the wonder of it all is that he died to separate men and women whom he loves from the sin which he hates. As usual, I remind you that there's a free book to go with this series of 10 studies of Christ's character. And if you'd like a copy of the book, just ask for the character of Christ. And you can do this by writing in by email or by post. Here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN4, 8DY, UK. Search for Truth, P.O. Box 748, Ringwood, Victoria 3134, Australia. Search for Truth, P.O. Box 70115, Chilomini, Blantyre, Malawi. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. So we're really grateful to you for your support in following these studies and hope you're enjoying them. So thanks again for the pleasure of your company. Please join me again next week if you're able when Brian will be taking a look at the dignity of Christ. Until then, it's goodbye and very best wishes from Brian, David and me, John. So see you again soon. And in the meantime, may God richly bless you. <laughs>